BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. No Cowherders Wanted by Robert Howard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. No Cowherders Wanted by Robert Howard I hear a gang of buffalo hunters got together recently in a saloon in Dodge City to discuss ways and means of keeping their sculps onto their heads whilst collecting pelts. And pretty soon one of them riz and said, You mavericks make me sick. For the last hour you've been chawing wind about the soldiers trying to keep us north of the Cimarron, and bellyachin' about the Comanches, Kiowas, and Apaches, which yearns for our hair. You've took up all that time jawing about such trifling hazards and planning steps to take again em, but you ain't making no efforts whatsoever to protect yourselves agin the biggest menace they is to the entire buffalo hunting clan, which is Breckenridge Elkins. That just shows how easy prejudiced folks is. You'd think I had a grudge agin buffalo hunters, the way they takes to the bresh whenever they sees me comin, and the way they misrepresents what happened at Cordova is plumb disgustful. To hear em talk, you'd think I was the only man there which committed any violence. If that's so, I'd like to know how all them bullet holes got in the Diamond Bar Saloon which I was using for a fort. Who throwed the mayor through that board fence? Who sought fire to Joe Emerson's store just to smoke me out? Who started the row in the first place by sticking up insulting signs in public places? They ain't no use in them fellers trying to act innocent. Any unbiased man which was there, and survived to tell the tale, knows I acted all the way through with as much dignity as a man can act, which is being shot at by forty or fifty wild-eyed buffalo skinners. I had never even saw a buffalo hunter before, because it was the first time I'd ever been that far east. I was taking a pasear into New Mexico with a cowpoke by the name of Glaze Bannock, which I'd met in Arizona. I stopped in Albuquerque, and he went on, heading for Dodge City. Well, I weren't in Albuquerque as long as I'd aimed to be, 
account of going broke quicker'n I expected. I had just one dollar left after paying for having three fellers sewed up, which had somehow got a foul of my bowie knife after criticizing the Democratic Party. I ain't the man to leave my opponents on the public charge. Well, I pulled out of town and headed for the cow camps on the Pecos, aiming to get me a job. But I hadn't went far till I met a waddy riding in, and he taken a good look at me and Captain Kidd and says, You must be him. Wouldn't no other man fit the description he give me. Who, I says? Glaze Bannock, says he. He give me a letter to give to Breckenridge Elkins. So I says, Well, all right, give me it. So he did, and it read as follers. Dear Breckenridge, I am in jail in Panther Springs for nothing. All I done was kind of push the deputy sheriff with a little piece of scrap iron. Could I help it if he fell down and fractured his skull, Breckenridge? But they say I got to pay ten dollars fine, and I have not got no such money, Breckenridge. But old man Garnett over on Buck Creek owes me ten bucks, so you collect from him and come and pay me out of this hen coop. The food is terrible, Breckenridge. Hustle. Your misjudged friend, Glaze Bannock, Esquire. Glaze never could stay out of trouble, not being tactful like me, but he was a pretty good sort of hombre. So I headed for Buck Creek and collected the money off of old man Garnett, which was somewhat reluctant to give up the dough. In fact, he bit me severely in the hind leg whilst I was settin' on him, prying his fingers loose from that there tin spot. And when I rode off down the road with a dinero, he run into his shack and got his buffalo gun and shot at me till I was clean out of sight. But I ignored his lack of hospitality. I knowed he was too dizzy to shoot straight, account of him having accidentally banged his head on a fence post, which I happened to have in my hand whilst we was wrestling. I left him waving his gun and howling damnation and destruction, and I was well on the road for Panther Springs before I discovered, to my disgust, that my shirt was a complete ruin. I considered going back and demanding that old man Garnett buy me a new one, account of his being the one which tore it. But he was such a unreasonable old cuss, I decided again it, and rode on to Panther Springs, arriving there shortly after noon. The first critter I seen was the purtiest gal I'd saw in a coon's age. She come out of a store and stopped to talk to a young cowpuncher she called Curly. I reined Captain Kidd around behind a corn crib so she wouldn't see me in my scarecrow condition. After a while she went on down the street and went into a cabin with a fence around it and a front porch, which showed her folks was wealthy. And I come out from behind the crib and says to the young buck which was smirking after her and combing his hair with the other hand, I says, Who is that there gal, the one you was just talking to? Judith Granger, says he, 
Her folks lives over to Sheba, but her old man brung her over here on account of all the fellers over there was about to cut each other's throats over her. He's making her stay a spell with her Aunt Henrietta, which is a war hoss if I ever seen one. The boys is so scared of her, they don't dast try to spark Judith. Except me. I persuaded the old mud hen to let me call on Judith, and I'm going over there for supper. That's what you think, I says gently. Fact is, though, Miss Granger has got a date with me. She didn't tell me, he begun scowling. She don't know it herself, yet, I says, but I'll tell her you was sorry you couldn't show up. Why, you, he says, bloodthirsty, and started for his gun, when a feller who'd been watching us from the store door hollered, By golly, if it ain't Breckenridge Elkins. Breckenridge Elkins, gasped Curly, and he dropped his gun and keeled over with a low gurgle. "'Has he got a weak heart?' I asked the feller, which had recognized me. And he said, "'Aw, oh, he just fainted when he realized how close he'd come to throwing a gun on the terror of the Humboldts. "'Drag him over to the hoss-trough, boys, and throw some water on him. "'Breckenridge, I owns that grocery store there, and your pa knows me right well. "'As a special favor to me, will you refrain from killing anybody in my store?' So I said all right, then I remembered my shirt was tore too bad to call on a young lady in. I generally has em made to order, but they weren't time for that if I was going to eat supper with Miss Judith. So I went into the general store and bought me one. I don't know why they don't make shirts big enough to fit reasonable-sized men like me. You'd think nobody but midgets wore shirts. The biggest one in the store weren't only eighteen in the collar, but I didn't figure on buttoning the collar anyway. If I'd tried to button it, it would have strangled me. So I give the feller five dollars and put it on. It fit pretty close, but I believed I could wear it if I didn't have to expand my chest or something. Of course, I had to use some of Glaze's dough to pay for it with, but I didn't reckon he'd mind, considering all the trouble I was going to, to get him out of jail. I rode down the alley behind the jail, and come to a barred window, and said, Hey, Glaze looked out, kind of peaked, like his grub weren't settin' well with him. But he brightened up and says, Hooray! I've been on edge expectin' you. Go on round to the front door, Breck, and pay them coyotes a tin spot, and let's go. The grub I've been getting here would turn a lobo's stomach. Well, I says, I ain't exactly got the ten bucks glaze. I had to have a shirt, because mine got tore, so... He gave a yelp like a stricken elk, and grabbed the bars convulsively. Are you crazy? he hollered. You squanders my money on linens and fine raiment, whilst I languishes in a prison dungeon? Be calm, I advised. I still got five bucks a yarn and one of mine. All I got to do is step down to a gambling hall and build it up. Build it up, says he fiercely. Listen, blast your hide. Does you know what I've had for breakfast, dinner, and supper ever since I was throwed in here? 
beans, beans, beans. Here he was so overcome by emotion that he choked on the word. And they ain't even first-class beans, neither, he said bitterly, when he could talk again. They're full of grit and wormholes, and I think the Mex cook washes his feet in the pot he cooks em in. Well, I says, such cleanliness is to be encouraged, cause I never heard of one before which washed his feet in anything. Don't worry, I'll get in a poker game and win enough to pay your fine and plenty over. Well, get at it, he begged. Get me out before supper time. I wants a steak with onions so bad I can smell it. So I headed for the Golden Steer Saloon. They weren't many men in there just then, but they was a poker game going on, and when I told them I craved to set in, they looked me over and made room for me. They was a black-whiskered cuss which said he was from Cordova, which was dealing, and the first thing I noticed was he was dealing his own hand off the bottom of the deck. The others didn't seem to see it, but but us Bear Creek folks has got eyes like hawks, otherwise we'd never live to get grown. So I says, I don't know what the rules is in these parts, but where I come from we almost always deals off the top of the deck. Are you accusing me of cheating? he demands passionately, fumbling for his weapons, and in his agitation dropping three or four extra aces out of his sleeves. I wouldn't think of such a thing, I says. Probably them marked yards I see sticking out of your boot tops is merely souvenirs. For some reason this seemed to infuriate him to the point of drawing a bowie knife, so I hit him over the head with a brass cuspidor, and he fell under the table with a holler groan. Some of the fellers run in and looked at his boots sticking out from under the table, and one of them said, Hey, I'm the justice of the peace. You can't do that. This is an orderly town. And another one said, I'm the sheriff. If you can't keep the peace, I'll have to arrest you. This was too much, even for a mild-mannered man like me. Shit your fool heads, I roared, brandishing my fists. I come here to pay Glaze Bannock's fine and get him out of jail, peaceable and orderly, and I'm trying to raise the dough like a deleted gentleman. But by golly, if you hyenas pushes me beyond endurance, I'll tear down the cussed jail and snake him out without paying no blasted fine. The Justice of the Peace turned white. He says to the sheriff, Let him alone. I've already bought these here new boots on credit on the strength of them ten bucks we gets from Bannock. That, says the sheriff dubiously, and the J.P. hissed fiercely. Shut up, you blame fool. I just now recognized him. That's Breckenridge Elkins. The sheriff turned pale and swallowed his Adam's apple and says feebly, Excuse me, I, uh... I ain't feelin' so good. I guess it's something I et. I think I'd better ride over to the next county and get me some pills. But I don't think he was very sick from the way he run after he got outside the saloon. 
If they'd been a jackrabbit ahead of him, he would have trampled the gizzard out of it. Well, they'd taken the black-whiskered gent out from under the table and started pouring water on him, and I seen it was now about supper time, so I went over to the cabin where Judith lived. I was met at the door by an iron-jawed female, about the size of an ordinary barn, which give me a suspicious look and says, "'Well, what you want?' "'I'm looking for your sister, Miss Judith,' I says, taking off my Stetson politely. "'What you mean, my sister?' says she with a scowl, but a much milder tone. "'I'm her aunt.' "'You don't mean to tell me,' I said, looking plumb astonished. "'Why, when I first seen you, I thought you was her herself.' and couldn't figure out how nobody but a twin sister could have such a resemblance. Well, I can see right off that youth and beauty is a family characteristic. Go along with you, you young scoundrel, says she, smirking and giving me a nudge with her elbow, which would have busted anybody's ribs but mine. You can't soft-soap me. Come in. I'll call Judith. What's your name? Breckenridge Elkins, ma'am, I says. So, says she, looking at me with new interest, I've heard tell of you, but you got a lot more sense than they give you credit for. Oh, Judith, she called, and the winders rattled when she let her voice go. You got company. Judith come in looking prettier than ever and when she seen me she batted her eyes and recoiled violently. Who, "'Who's that?' she demanded wildly. "'Mr. Breckenridge Elkins of Bear Creek, Nevada,' says her aunt, "'the only young man I've met in this whole darn town which has got any sense. "'Well, come on in and set. Supper's on the table. "'We was just waiting for Curly Jacobs,' she says to me, but if the varmint can't get here on time, he can go hungry. He can't come, I says. He sent word by me he's sorry. Well, I ain't, snorted Judith's aunt. I give him permission to, just because I figured even a bodacious flirt like Judith wouldn't cotton to such a sapsucker. But Aunt Henrietta, protested Judith, blushing, I can't abide the sight of such weaklings, says Aunt Henrietta, settling herself carefully into a rawhide bottom chair which groaned under her weight. Drag up that bench, Breckenridge. It's the only thing in the house which has a chance of holding your weight outside the sofa in the front room. Don't argue with me, Judith. I says Curly Jacobs ain't no fit man for a gal like you. Didn't I see him strain his fool back, trying to lift that there barrel of salt I wanted fotched to the smoke-house? I finally had to tote it myself. What makes young men so blame spindlin' these days? Pat blames the Republican Party, I says. Ha, 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 says she in a guffaw, which shook the doors on their hinges and scared the cat into convulsions. "'Young man, you got a great sense of humor, ain't he, Judith?' says she, cracking a beef-bone betwixt her teeth like it was a pecan. Judith says, yes, kind of pallid, 
and all during the meal she eyed me kind of nervous like she was expecting me to go into a war dance or something. Well, when we was through and Aunt Henrietta had had enough to keep a tribe of Sioux through a hard winter, she riz up and says, Now clear out of here whilst I washes the dishes. But I must help with them, says Judith. And Henrietta snorted. What makes you so eager to work all of a sudden? You want your guest to think you ain't eager for his company? Get out of here. So she went, but I paused to say kind of doubtful to Aunt Henrietta. I ain't sure Judith likes me much. Don't pay no attention to her whims, says Aunt Henrietta, picking up the water barrel to fill her dishpan. She's a flirtatious minx. I've took a liking to you. And if I decide you're the right man for her, you're as good as hitched. Nobody couldn't never do nothing with her but me. But she's learnt who her boss is, after having to eat her meals off the mantelboard a few times. Go on in, quarter. Don't be backward. So I went on in the front room, and Judith seemed to kind of warm up to me and asked me a lot of questions about Nevada. And finally, she says, she's heard me spoke of as a fightin' man and hoped I ain't had no trouble in Panther Springs. I told her no, only I had to hit one black-whiskered thug from Cordova over the head with a cuspidor. At that, she jumped up like she'd sought on a pin. That was my Uncle Jabez Granger, she hollered. How dast you, you big bully! You ought to be ashamed of great big man like you picking on a little feller like him, which don't weigh a ounce over two hundred and fifteen pounds. Aw, oh, shucks, I said contritely. I'm sorry, Judith. Just as I was beginning to like you, she mourned. Now he'll write to Pap and prejudice him again you. You just gotta go and find him and apologize to him and make friends with him. Oh, heck, I said. But she wouldn't listen to nothing else. So I went out and clumb on the cat and kid, went back to the golden steer, and when I come in, everybody crawled under the tables. What's the matter with you all, I said fretfully. I'm looking for Jabez Granger. He's left for Cordova, says the barkeeper, sticking his head up from behind the bar. Well, there weren't nothing to do but follow him, so I rode by the jail, and Glaze was at the window, and he says eagerly, Are you ready to pay me out? Be patient, Glaze, I says. I ain't got the dough yet, but I'll get it somehow as soon as I get back from Cordova. What? he shrieked. Be calm like me, I advised. You don't see me getting all head up, do you? I gotta go catch Judith Granger's Uncle Jabez and apologize to the old illegitimate for busting his conk with a spittoon. I'd be back tomorrow or the next day at the most. Well, his language was scandalous, considering all the trouble I was going to just to get him out of jail. But I refused to take offense. I headed back to the Granger cabin and Judith was on the front porch. I didn't see Aunt Henrietta. She was back in the kitchen washing dishes and singing, They've laid Jesse James in his grave, in a voice which loosened the shingles on the roof. 
so I told Judith where I was going and asked her to take some pies and cakes and things to the jail for glaze, account of the beans was ruin in his stomach, and she said she would. So I pulled stakes for Cordova. It laid quite a ways to the east, and I figured to catch up with Uncle Jabez before he got there. But he had a long start, and was on a mighty good hoss, I reckon. Anyway, Captain Kidd got one of his hellfire streaks and insisted on stopping every few miles to buck all over the landscape, till I finally got sick of his mulishness and busted him over the head with my pistol. By this time we'd lost so much time i never overtaken Uncle Jabez at all, and it was getting daylight before I come inside of Cordova. Well, about sun-up, I come on to a old feller and his wife in a ramshackle wagon, drawed by a couple of skinny mules with a hound-dog. One wheel had run off into a sinkhole, and the mules were so poor and good for nothing, they couldn't pull it out. So I got off and laid hold onto the wagon, and the old man said, Wait a minute, young feller, whilst me and the old lady gets out to lighten the load. What for? I asked. Set still. So I hoisted the wheel out, but if it had been stuck any tighter, I might have had to use both hands. By golly, says the old man, I'd a swore nobody but Breckenridge Elkins could do that. Well, I'm him. I says, and they both looked at me with reverence, and I asked them was they going to Panther Springs. We ain't to, says the old woman, kind of hopeless. One place is as good as another to old people which has been robbed out of their life savings. You all been robbed, I asked, shocked. Well, says the old man, I ain't in the habit of burdening strangers with my woes, but as a matter of fact we has. My name's Hopkins. I had a ranch down on the Pecos till the drought wiped me out and we moved to Panther Springs with what little we saved from the wreck. In a ill-advised moment, I started speculating on buffler hides. I put in all my cash buying a load over on the Llano Estacado, which I aimed to freight to Santa Fe and sell at a fat profit. I happen to know they're fetching a higher price there now than the air in Dodge City. And last night the whole blame cargo disappeared into thin air, as it were. We was stopping at Cordova for the night, and the old lady was sleeping in the hotel, and I was camped at the edge of town with the wagon. During the night somebody snuck up and hit me over the head. When I come to this morning, Hides, wagon, and team was all gone, and no trace. When I told the city marshal, he just laughed in my face and asked me how I'd expect him to track down a load of buffalo hides in a town that was full of em. Dang him, they was packed and corded neat with my old brand, the Circle A, marked on em in red paint. Joe Emerson, which owns the saloon and most all the town, taken a mortgage on our little shack in Panther Springs, and loaned me enough money to buy this measly team and wagon. If we can get back to Panther Springs, maybe I can get enough freightin' to do so we can kind of live anyway. Well, I said, 
much moved by the story. I'm going to Cordova, and I'll see if I can't find your hides. Thank ye kindly, Breckenridge, says he, but I got a idee them hides is already far on their way to Dodge City. Well, I hopes you has better luck in Cordova than we did. So they drove on west, and I rode east, and got to Cordova about an hour after sun-up. As I come into the age of town, I seen a signboard about the size of a door stuck up which says on it, in big letters, No cowherders allowed in Cordova. What the hell does that mean? I demanded wrathfully of a feller which had stopped by it to light him a cigarette. And he says, Just what it says. Cordova's full of buffler hunters in for a spree, and they don't like cowboys. Big as you be, I'd advise you to light a shuck for somewheres else. Bull Krogan put that sign up, and you ought to see what happened to the last puncher which ignored it. Expletive deleted, I says in a voice which shook the beans out of the mesquite trees for miles around. And so saying, I pulled up the sign and headed for Main Street with it in my hand. I am as peaceful and mild-mannered a critter as you could hope to meet, but even with me a man can go too damn far. This here's a free country, and no durned hairy-necked buffalo skinner can draw boundary lines for us cowpunchers and get away with it. Not whilst I can pull a trigger. They was very few people on the street, and sech as was looked at me surprised-like. "'Where the hell is them fool buffalo hunters?' I roared. And a feller says, "'They're all gone to the racetrack east of town to race hosses, except Bull Krogan, which has taken hisself a dram in the Diamond Bar.' So I lit and stalked into the Diamond Bar with my spurs a-jinglin', and my disposition getting thornier every second. They was a big hairy critter in buckskins and moccasins standing at the bar drinking whiskey and talking to the barkeep, and a flashy-dressed gent with slick hair and a diamond horseshoe stick-pin. They all turned and gaped at me, and the hunter wretched for his belt where he was wearing the longest knife I ever seen. "'Who air you?' he gasped. A cowman, I roared, brandishing the sign. Are you Bull Krogan? Yeah, says he. What about it? So I busted the signboard over his head, and he fell onto the floor yelling bloody murder and trying to draw his knife. The board was splintered, but the stake it had been fastened to was a pretty good-sized post, so I took and beat him over the head with it till the bartender tried to shoot me with a sawed-off shotgun. I grabbed the barrel, and the charge just busted a shelf-load of whiskey bottles, and I throwed the shotgun through a nearby window. As I neglected to get the bartender loose from it first, it appears he went along with it. Anyway, he picked himself up off the ground, bleeding freely, and heading east down the street, shrieking, Help! Murder! A cowboy is killing Krogan and Emerson! Which was a lie because Krogan had crawled out the front door on his all-fours whilst I was tending to the barkeep, 
and if Emerson had showed any judgment he wouldn't have got his skull laid open to the bone. How did I know he was just trying to hide behind the bar? I thought he was going for a gun he had hid back there. As soon as I realized the truth, I dropped what was left of the bung starter and commenced pouring water on Emerson, and pretty soon he sot up and looked round wild-eyed, with blood and water dripping off his head. "'What happened?' he gurgled. "'Nothing to get excited about,' I assured him, knocking the neck off a bottle of whiskey. "'I'm looking for a gent named Jabez Granger.' It was at this moment that the city marshal opened fire on me through the back door. He grazed my neck with his first slug, and would probably have hit me with the next if I hadn't shot the gun out of his hand. He then run off down the alley. I pursued him and catched him when he looked back over his shoulder and hit a garbage can. "'I'm an officer of the law!' he howled, trying to get his neck out from under my foot so as he could draw his buoy. Don't you dast assault no officer of the law. I ain't, I snarled, kicking the knife out of his hand and kind of casually wiping my spur across his whiskers. But a officer which lets an old man get robbed of his buffalo hides then laughs in his face ain't deserving to be no officer. Give me that badge. I demotes you to a private citizen. I then hung him on to a nearby hen-roost by the seat of his breeches and went back up the alley, ignoring his impassioned profanity. I didn't go in at the back door of the saloon because I figured Joe Emerson might be laying to shoot me as I came in. So I went around the saloon to the front and run smack onto a mob of buffalo hunters, which had evidently been summoned from the racetrack by the barkeep. They had Bull Krogan at the hoss trough and was trying to wash the blood off of him, and they was all yelling and cussing so loud they didn't see me at first. Here we to be defied in our own lair by a deleted cow shepherd, howled Krogan. Scatter and comb the town for him. He's hiding down some back alley like as not. We'll hang him in front of the diamond bar and stick his scalp onto a pole as a warning to all his breed. Just let me lay eyes onto him again. Well, all you got to do is turn around, I says. And they all whirled so quick they dropped Krogan into the hoss trough. They gaped at me with their mouths open for a second. Krogan riz out of the water, snorting and spluttering and yelling, Well, what are you waiting on? Grab him! It was in trying to obey his instructions that three of them got their skulls fractured, and whilst the others was stumbling and falling over them, I backed into the saloon and pulled my six-shooters and issued a defiance to the world at large, and buffalo hunters in particular. They run for cover behind hitch-racks and troughs and porches and fences, and a feller in a plug hat came out and says, "'Gentlemen, Let's don't have no bloodshed within the city limits. As mayor of this fair city, I... It was at this instant that Krogan picked him up and throwed him through a board fence into a cabbage patch, where he lay till somebody revived him a few hours later. The hunters then all started shooting at me with fifty caliber Sharps buffalo rifles. Emerson, which was hiding behind a Schlitz signboard, 
hollered something amazing account of the holes which was being knocked into the roof and walls. The big sign in front was shot to splinters, and the mirror behind the bar was riddled, and all the bottles on the shelves and the hanging lamps was busted. It's plumb astonishing the damage a bushel or so of them big slugs can do to a saloon. They went right through the walls. If I hadn't kept moving all the time, I'd have been shot to rags. And I did get several bullets through my clothes, and three or four grazed some hide off. But even so I had the edge, cause they couldn't see me only for glimpses now and then through the winders, and was shooting more or less blind, because I had them all spotted and slung lead so fast and close they didn't dast show theirselves long enough to take good aim. But my cartridges began to run short, so I made a sally out into the alley just as one of them was trying to sneak in the back door. I hear tell he's very bitter toward me about his teeth, but I like to know how he expects to get kicked in the mouth without losing some fangs. So I jumped over his writhing carcass and run down the alley, winging three or four as I went, and collecting a pistol ball in my hind leg. They was hiding behind board fences on each side of the alley, but them boards wouldn't stop a forty-five slug. They all shot at me, but they misjudged my speed. I move a lot faster than most folks expect. Anyway, I was out of the alley before they could get their wits back, and as I went past the hitch rack where Captain Kidd was champing and snorting to get into the fight, I grabbed my Winchester forty-five ninety off of the saddle and run across the street. The hunters, which was still shooting at the front of the diamond bar, seen me, and that's when I got my spurs shot off. But I ducked into Emerson's general store, whilst the clerks all run shrieking out the back way. As for that misguided hunter, which tried to confiscate Captain Kidd, I ain't to blame for what happened to him. They're going around now saying I trained Captain Kidd special to jump onto a buffalo hunter with all four feet after kicking him through a corral fence. That's a lie. I didn't have to train him. He thought of it hisself. The idiot which tried to take him ought to be thankful he was able to walk with crutches inside a ten months. Well, I was now on the same side of the street as the hunters was, so as soon as I started shooting at em from the store winders, they run across the street and taken refuge in a dance hall right across from the store and started shooting back at me. And Joe Emerson hollered louder than ever, because he owned the dance hall too. All the citizens of the town had bolted into the hills long ago and left us to fight it out. Well, I piled sides of pork and barrels of pickles and bolts of calico in the winders and shot over them, and I built my barricades so solid even them buffalo guns couldn't shoot through them. They was plenty of Colt and Winchester ammunition in the store, and whiskey, so I knowed I could hold the fort indefinite. Them hunters could tell they weren't doing no damage, so pretty soon I heard Krogan bellerin, Go get that cannon the soldiers loaned the folks to fight the Apaches with. It's over behind the city hall. Bring it in at the back door. We'll blast him out of his fort, by golly.
"'You'll ruin my store!' screamed Emerson. "'I'll ruin your face if you don't shut up,' opined Krogan. "'Go on. Well, they kept shooting, and so did I, and I must have hit some of them, judging from the blood-curdling yells that went up from time to time. Then a most remarkable racket of cussing busted out, and from the remarks passed, I gathered they'd brung the cannon and somehow got it stuck in the back door of the dance hall. The shooting kind of died down while they wrestled with it, and in the lull I heard me a noise out behind the store. They weren't no winders in the back, which is why they hadn't shot at me from that direction. I snuck back and looked through a crack in the door, and I seen a feller in the dry gully which run along behind the store, and he had a kerosene can and some matches and was setting the store on fire. I just started to shoot when I recognized Judith Granger's Uncle Jabez. I laid down my Winchester and opened the door soft and easy and pounced out on him, but he let out a squawk and dodged and run down the gully. The shooting across the street broke out again, but I give no heed because I weren't going to let him get away from me again. I run him down the gully about a hundred yards and catched him, and taken his pistol away from him, but he got hold of a rock which he hammered me on the head with till I nigh lost patience with him. But I didn't want to injure him on account of Judith, so I merely kicked him in the belly then throwed him before he could get his breath back and sawed on him, and says, Blast your hide, I apologizes for lambing you with that there cuspidor. Does you accept my apology, you pot-bellied hoss-thief? Never, says he, rampacious. A granger never forgets. So I've taken him by the ears and beat his head again a rock till he gasps, Let up! I accept your apology, you deleted expletive. All right, I says, arising and dusting my hands. And if you ever goes back on your word, I'll hang your mangy hide to the... It was at that moment that Emerson's general store blew up with a ear-splitting bang. What the hell? shrieked Uncle Jabez, staggering, as the air was filled with fragments of groceries and pieces of flying timber. Ah, oh, I said disgustedly, I reckon a stray bullet hit a barrel of gunpowder. I aimed to move them barrels out of the line of fire, but kind of forgot about it. But Uncle Jabez had bit the dust. I hear tell he claims I hit him unexpected with a wagon pole. I didn't do no such thing. It was a section of the porch roof which fell on him, and if he'd been watching and ducked like I did, it wouldn't have hit him. I clumb out of the gully and found myself opposite from the diamond bar. Bull Krogan and the hunters was pouring out of the dance hall, whooping and yelling, and Joe Emerson was tearing his hair and howling like a timber wolf with a bellyache because his store was blowed up and his saloon was shot all to pieces. But nobody paid no attention to him. They went surging across the street, and nobody seen me when I crossed it from the other side and went into the alley that run behind the saloon. I run on down it till I got to the dance hall, and sure enough the cannon was stuck in the back door, 
it weren't wide enough for the wheels to get through. I heard Krogan roaring across the street. Poke into the debris, boys. Elkins' remains must be in here somewheres unless he was plumb dissolved. That crash. They was a splinter and a planks, and somebody yelled, Hey, Krogan's fell into a well or something. I heard Joe Emerson shriek, Damn it, stay away from there. Don't. I tore away a section of the wall and got the cannon loose and run it up to the front door of the dance hall and looked out. Them hunters was all ganged up with their backs to the dance hall, all bent over, whilst they was apparently trying to pull Krogan out of some hole he fell into head first. His cussin' sounded kind of muffled. Joe Emerson was having a fit at the edge of the crowd. Well, they'd loaded that there cannon with nails and spikes and lead slugs and carpet tacks and such like, but I put in a double handful of beer bottle caps just for good measure and touched her off. It made a noise like a thunderclap, and the recoil knocked me about seventeen foot. But you should a heard the yell them hunters let out when that hurricane of scrap iron hit em in the seat of the breeches. It was amazin. To my disgust, though, it didn't kill none of em. Seems like the charge was too heavy for the powder, so all it done was knock em off their feet and tear the breeches off of em. However, it swept the ground clean of em like a broom and left them all standing on their necks in the gully behind where the store had been, except Krogan, whose feet I still perceived sticking up out of the ruins. Before they could recover their wits, if they ever had any, I run across the street and started beating them over the head with a pillar I tore off the saloon porch. Some, such as was able, ariz and fled howling into the desert. I hear tell some of em didn't stop till they got to Dodge City, havin' run right through a Kiowa war party and scared them poor injuns till they turned white. Well, I laid hold of Krogan's legs and pulled him out of the place he had fell into, which seemed to be a kind of cellar, which had been under the floor of the store. Krogan's conversation didn't no ways make sense, and every time I let go of him he fell on his neck. So I abandoned him in disgust and looked down into the cellar to see what was in it that Emerson should have took so much to keep it hid. Well, it was plumb full of buffalo hides, all corded into neat bundles. At that, Emerson started to run, but I grabbed him and reached down with the other hand and hauled a bundle out. It was marked with a red Circle A brand. So, I says to Emerson, impulsively busting him in the snout, you stole old man Hopkins' hide yourself. Produce that mortgage. Where's that old man's wagon and team? I got em hid in my livery stable, he moaned. Go hitch em up and bring em here, I says, and if you tries to run off, I'll track you down and sculp you alive. I went and got Captain Kidd and watered him. When I got back, Emerson come up with the wagon and team, so I told him to load on them hides. I'm a ruined man, sniveled he. I ain't able to load no hides. The exercise'll do you good, I assured him, 
kicking the seat loose from his pants, so he gave a harass howl and went to work. About this time Krogan sat up and gaped at me weirdly. It all comes back to me, he gurgled. We was going to run Breckenridge Elkins out of town. He then fell back and went into shrieks of hysterical laughter, which was most hair-raising to hear. The wagon's loaded, panted Joe Emerson. Take it and get out and be quick. Well, let this be a lesson to you, I says, ignoring his hostile attitude. Honesty's always the best policy. I then hit him over the head with a wagon spoke and clucked to the hosses, and we headed for Panther Springs. Old man Hopkins' mules had give out halfway to Panther Springs. Him and the old lady was camped there when I drove up. I never seen folks so happy in my life as they was when I handed the team, wagon, hides, and mortgage over to them. They both cried, and the old lady kissed me, and the old man hugged me, and I thought I'd plumb die of embarrassment before I could get away. But I did finally, and headed for Panther Springs again, because I still had to raise the dough to get Glaze out of jail. I got there about sun-up, and headed straight for Judith's cabin to tell her I'd made friends with Uncle Jabez. Aunt Henrietta was cleaning a carpet on the front porch and looking mad. When I come up, she stared at me and said, Good land, Breckenridge, what happened to you? Oh, nothing, I says. Just a argument with them fool buffalo hunters over at Cordova. They'd cleaned an old gent and his old lady of their buffalo hides to say nothing of their hosses and wagon. So I rid on to see what I could do about it. Them hairy-necked hunters didn't believe me when I said I wanted them hides, so I had to persuade em a leetle. Only thing is, they is saying now I was to blame for the whole affair. I apologized to Judas' uncle, too. Had to chase him from here to Cordova. Where's Judith? Gone, she says, stabbing her broom at the floor so vicious she broke the handle off. When she'd taken them pies and cakes to your fool friend down in the jailhouse, she'd taken a shine to him at first sight. So she borrowed the money from me to pay his fine. Said she wanted a new dress to look nice in for you, the deceitful hussy. If I'd knowed what she wanted it for, she wouldn't a got it. She'd a got something across my knee. But she paid him out of the jug, and... And what happened then? I says wildly. She left me a note, snarled Aunt Henrietta, giving the carpet a whack that tore it into six pieces. She said, anyway, she was afeard if she didn't marry him, I'd make her marry you. She must have sent you off on that wild goose chase a purpose. Then she met him, and, well, they snuck out and got married, and are now on their way to Denver for their honeymoon. Hey! What's the matter? Are you sick? I be, I gurgled. The ingratitude of mankind cuts me to the gizzard. After all I did for Glaze Bannock. Well, by golly, this is a lesson to me. I bet I don't never work my fingers to the quick 
getting another ranny out of jail. End of No Cow Herders Wanted The Conquering Hero of the Humboldts by Robert Howard This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Conquering Hero of the Humboldts by Robert Howard I was in Sundance, enjoying myself a little, after a long trail drive up from the Cimarron, when I got a letter from Abednego Raxton, which said as follows, Dear Breckenridge, that time I paid your fine down in Tucson for breaking the county clerk's leg, you said you'd give me a hand any time I ever needed help. Well, Breckenridge, I need your assistance right now. The rustlers is stealing me ragged. It has got so I nail my bed kivers to the bunk every night, or they'd steal the blankets right off of me, Breckenridge. Moreover, a stumbling block on the path of progress by the name of Ted Bissett is running sheep on the range next to me. This is more than a man can endure, Breckenridge. So I want you to come up here right away and help me find out who is stealing my stock and bust Ted Bissett's head for him, the low-minded skunk. Hoping you are the same, I begs to remain as usual. Your abused friend, Raxton Esquire. P.S. That sap-headed misfit, Johnny Willoughby, which used to work for me down on Green River, is sheriff here, and he couldn't catch flies if they was bogged down in molasses. Well, I didn't feel it was none of my business to mix into any row Abednego might be having with the sheepmen, so long as both sides fit fair. But rustlers was a different matter. Uh, Elkins detests a thief. So I mounted Captain Kidd, after the usual battle, and headed for Lonesome Lizard, which was the nighest town to his ranch. I found myself approaching this town a while before noon, one blazing hot day, and as I crossed a right thick timbered creek, Shrieks for aid and assistance suddenly bust the stillness. A hoss also neighed wildly, and Captain Kidd begun to snort and champ like he always does when they is a bar or a cougar in the vicinity. I got off and tied him, because if I was going to have to fight some critter like that, I didn't want him mixing into the scrap. He was just as likely to kick me as the varmint. I then went on foot in the direction of the screams, which was growing more desperate every minute, and I presently come to a thicket with a big tree in the middle of it, and there they was. One of the purtiest gals I ever seen was roosting in the tree and screeching blue murder, and they was a cougar climbing up after her. Help, says she wildly, shoot him! I just wish some of them tender foots which calls theirselves naturalists could see this, I says, taking off my Stetson. 
Uh, Elkins never forgets his manners. Some of them has tried to tell me cougars never attacks human beings, nor climbs trees, nor prowls in the daytime. I bet you this would make em realize they don't know it all, just like I said to that in which I seen in war paint Nevada last summer. Will you stop talking and do something? she says fiercely. Ow! Because he had wretched up and made a pass at her foot with his left paw. I seen this had went far enough, so I told him sternly to come down but all he done was look down at me and spit in a very insulting manner. So I wretched up and got him by the tail and yanked him down and whapped him again the ground three or four times, and when I let go of him he run off a few yards and looked back at me in a most peculiar manner. Then he shaken his head like he couldn't believe it himself and let a shuck as hard as he could peel it in the general direction of the North Pole. "'Why didn't you shoot him?' demanded the gal, leaning as far out as she could to watch him. "'Oh, he won't come back,' I assured her. "'Hey, look out! That limb's going to break!' Which it did, just as I spoke, and she come tumbling down with a shriek of despair. She still held on to the limb with a desperate grip, however, which is why it wrapped me so severe on the head when I catched her. "'Oh!' says she, letting go of the limb and grabbing me. Am I hurt? I don't know, I says. You better let me carry you to wherever you want to go. No, says she, getting her breath back. I'm all right. Let me down. So I done so, and she says, I got a hoss tied over there behind that fur. I was riding home from Lonesome Lizard and stopped to poke a squirrel out of a holler tree. It weren't a squirrel, though. It was that dang lion. If you'll get my hoss for me, I'll be riding home. Pap's ranch is just over that ridge to the west. I'm Margaret Brewster. I'm Breckenridge Elkins of Bear Creek, Nevada, I says. I'm heading for Lonesome Lizard, but I'll be riding back this way before long. Can I call on you? Well, she says, I'm engaged to marry a feller, but it's conditional. I got a suspicion he's a spineless failure, and I told him flat if he didn't succeed at the job he's working on now, not to come back. I detests a failure. That's why I like your looks, says she, giving me an admiring glance. A man which can wrestle a mountain lion with his bar hands is worth any gal's time. I'll send you word at Lonesome Lizard. If my fiancé flops like it looks he's going to do, I'd admire to have you call. I'll be awaiting your message with eager heart and honest devotion, I says, and she blushed daintily and clum on her hoss and pulled her freight. I watched her till she was clean out of sight, then hove a sigh that shook the acorns out of the surrounding oaks and winded my way back to Captain Kidd in a sort of rose-colored haze. I was so entranced I started to get on the Captain Kidd on the wrong end and never noticed till he kicked me violently in the belly. Love, Captain Kidd, I says to him dreamily, battening between the eyes with my pistol butt, is youth's sweet dream. But he made no response outside of stomping on my corns. 
Captain Kidd has got very little sentiment. So I mounted and pulled for Lonesome Lizard, which I arrive at maybe an hour later. I put Captain Kidd in the strongest livery stable I could find, and seen he was fed and watered, then warned the stable hands not to antagonize him. Then I headed for the Red Warrior Saloon. I needed a little refreshments before I started for Abednego's ranch. I'd taken me a few drams and talked to the men which was foregathered there, being mainly cowmen. The sheep men patronized the buck and ram across the street. That was the first time I'd ever been in Montana, and them fellers weren't familiar with my reputation, as was showed by their manner. How the sum ever, they was perlite enough, and after we'd downed a few fingers of corn scrapings, one of them asked me where I was from, proving they considered me an honest man with nothing to conceal. When I told them, one of them said, By golly, they must grow big men in Nevada if you're a sample. You're the biggest critter I ever seen in the shape of a human. I bet he's as stout as Big John, says one, and another and says, That can't be. This gent is human after all. Big John ain't. I was just fixin' to ask em who this John Varmint was, when one of em cranes his neck toward the winder and says, Speak of the devil and ye gets a whiff of brimstone. Here comes John across the street now. He must have seen this gent comin' in and is on his way to make his usual challenge. The sight of a man as big as him is like wavin' a red flag at a bull. I looked out the window and seen a critter about the size of a granary coming across the street from the buck and ram, followed by a gang of men which looked like him, but not nigh as big. What kind of folks air they? I asked with interest. They ain't neither Mexicans nor Injuns, but they sure ain't white men neither. Ah, oh, they're hunkies, says a little sawed-off cowman. Ted Bissett brung em in here to herd sheep for him. That biggin's John. He ain't got no sense, but you never seen such a hunk of muscle in your life. Where are they from? I asked. Canada? Nah, says he. They come originally from a place called Europe. I don't know where it is, but I judge it's somewhere east of Chicago. But I knowed them fellers never originated nowheres on this continent. They was rough-dressed and wild-looking, with knives in their belts, and they didn't look like no folks I'd ever saw before. They come into the bar-room, and the one called John bristled up to me very hostile, with his little beady black eyes. He stuck out his chest about a foot and hit it with his fist, which was about the size of a sledgehammer. It sounded like a man beating a bass drum. You strong man, says he. I strong too. We wrestle, eh? Nah, I says. I don't care nothing about wrestling. He give a snort which blowed the foam off of every beer glass on the bar and looked around till he seen an iron rod lying on the floor. It looked like the handle of a branded iron, and was pretty thick. He grabbed this and bent it into a V and throwed it down on the bar in front of me, 
and all the other hunkies jabbered admiringly. This childish display irritated me, but I controlled myself and drunk another finger of whiskey, and the bartender whispered to me, Look out for him. He aims to prod you into a fight. He's nearly killed nine or ten men with his bare hands. He's a mean one. Well, says I, tossing a dollar onto the bar and turning away, I got more important things to do than wrestle an outlandish foreigner in a bar room. I gotta eat my dinner and get out to the Raxton Ranch quick. But at that moment Big John chose to open his bazoo. There are some folks which can't never let well enough alone. Frayed, jeered he. Yah, yah. The hunkies all whooped and guffawed and the cattleman scowled. "'What you mean, afraid?' I gasped, more dumbfounded than mad. It'd been so long since anybody's made a remark like that to me. I was plumb flabbergasted. Then I remembered I was amongst strangers which didn't know my reputation, and I realized it was my duty to correct that their oversight before somebody got hurt on account of ignorance. So I said, All right, you dumb foreign muttonhead, I'll wrestle you. But as I went up to him, he doubled up his fist and hit me severely on the nose, and them hunkies all bust into loud, rude laughter. That weren't wise. A man had better twist a striped thunderbolt's tail than hit a Elkins unexpected on the nose. I give a roar of irritation and grabbed Big John and started committing mayhem on him, free and enthusiastic. I swept all the glasses and bottles off of the bar with him and knocked down a hanging lamp with him and fanned the floor with him till he was limp. Then I throwed him the full length of the bar room. His head went through the panels of the back door, and the other hunkies, which had stood petrified, stampeded into the street with howls of horror. So I'd taken the Brandon iron handle and straightened it out, and bent it around his neck, and twisted the ends together in a knot, so he had to get a blacksmith to file it off after he come to, which was several hours later. All them cowmen was staring at me with their eyes popped out of their heads and seemed plumb incapable of speech. So I give a snort of disgust at the whole incident and strode off to get my dinner. As I left, I heard one feller, which was holding on to the bar like he was too weak to stand alone, say feebly to the dumbfounded bartender, Give me a drink, quick. I never thunk I'd live to see something I couldn't believe when I was looking right smack at it. I couldn't make no sense out of this, so I headed for the dining room of the Montana Hotel and Bar. But my hopes of peace and quiet was an illusion. I'd just started on my fourth beefsteak when a big maverick in star-top boots and store-bought clothes come surging into the dining room and bellered, Is your name Elkins? Yeah, it is, I says, but I ain't deef. You don't have to yell. 
"'What the hell you mean by interfering with my business?' he squalled, ignoring my reproof. "'I don't know what you're talking about,' I growled, emptying the sugar bowl into my coffee cup with some irritation. It looked like Lonesome Lizard was full of maniacs which craved destruction. Who air you, anyhow?' "'I'm Ted Bissett, that's who!' howled he, convulsively gesturing toward his six-shooter. "'And I'm on to you. You're a damn Nevada gunman. Old Abe Draxton's brought up here to run me off the range. He's been bragging about it all over town, and you start your work by running off my sheep-herders.' "'What do you mean, I run your sheep-herders off?' I demanded, amazed. They run off after you maltreated Big John, he gnashed, with his face convulsed. They're so scared of you they won't come back without double pay. You can't do this to me, you expletive deleted. A man don't live, which can call me that name with impunity. I impulsively hit him in the face with my fried steak, and he give a impassioned shriek and pulled his gun. But some grease had gotten in his eyes, so all he done with his first shot was bust the syrup pitcher at my elbow, and before he could cock his gun again, I shot him through the arm. He dropped his gun and grabbed the place with his other hand and made some remarks which ain't fitting for to repeat. I yelled for another steak, and Bissett yelled for a doctor and the manager yelled for the sheriff. The last-named individual didn't get there till after the doctor and the stake had arrove and was set in Bissett's arm. The doctor, I mean, and not the stake, which a trembling waiter brung me. Quite a crowd had gathered by this time and was watching the doctor work with great interest and offering advice which seemed to infuriate Bissett, judging from his language. He also discussed his busted arm with considerable passion, but the doctor weren't a bit worried. You never seen such a cheerful gent. He was jovial and gay, no matter how loud Bissett yelled. You could tell right off he was a man which could take it. But Bissett's friends was very mad, and Jack Campbell, his foreman, was muttering something about em taking the law into their own hands when the sheriff came prancing in, waving a six-shooter and hollering, "'Where is he? Point out the scoundrel to me!' "'There he is!' everybody yelled and ducked, like they expected gunplay. But I had already recognized the sheriff, and when he seen me he recoiled and shoved his gun out of sight like it was red-hot or something. "'Brickin' Ridge Elkins!' says he. Then he stopped and studied a while, then he told them to take Bissett out to the bar and pour some liquor down him. When they'd went, he sat down at the table and says, Brick, I want you to understand that they ain't nothing personal about this, but I got to arrest you. It's again the law to shoot a man inside of the city limits. I ain't got time to get arrested, I told him. I gotta get over to old Abed Raxton's ranch. "'But listen, Brick,' argued the sheriff. It was John Willoughby, just like old Abed said. 
What'll folks think if I don't jail you for shooting a leading citizen? Election's coming up and my hat's in the ring, says he, gulping my coffee. Bissett shot at me first, I said. Why don't you arrest him? Well, he didn't hit you, says Johnny, absently cramming half a pie into his mouth and making a stab at my potatoes. Anyway, he's got a busted arm and ain't able to go to jail just now. Besides, I need the sheepmen's votes. Oh, I don't like jails, I said irritably, and he begun to weep. If you was a friend to me, sobs he, you'd be glad to spend the night in jail to help me get re-elected. I'd do as much for you. The whole county's given me hell anyway, cause I ain't been able to catch none of them cattle rustlers, and if I don't arrest you, I don't have a Chinaman's chance at the polls. How can you do me like this, after the times we had together in the old days? I'll stop blubbering, I says. You can arrest me if you want to. What's the fine? I don't want to collect no fine, Breck, says he, wiping his eyes on the oilcloth table cover and filling his pockets with doughnuts. I figures a jail sentence will give me more prestige. I'll let you out first thing in the morning. You won't tear up the jail, will you, Breck? I promised I wouldn't, and then he wants me to give up my guns, and I refuses. But good gosh, Breck, he pleaded, it'd look awful funny for a prisoner to keep on his shooting irons. So I give em to him, just to shut him up, and then he wanted to put his handcuffs onto me, but they weren't big enough to fit my wrists. So he said if I'd lend him some money, he could have the blacksmith make me some leg irons, but I refused profanely. So he said, all right, it was just a suggestion and no offense intended. So we went down to the jail. The jailer was off sleeping off a drunk somewheres, but he left the key hanging on the door, so we went in. Pretty soon along come Johnny's deputy, Bige Gantry, a long, loose jined cuss with a dangerous eye. So Johnny sent him to the Red Warrior for a can of beer, and whilst he was gone, Johnny bragged on him a heap. Why, says he, Bige is the only man in the county which has ever got within shooting distance of them dern outlaws. He was by hisself, fust luck. If I'd been along, we'd a scuppered the whole gang. I asked him if he had any idea who they was, and he said Bige believed they was a gang up from Wyoming. Then I said, well, then in that case, they got a hangout in the hill somewheres and ought to be easier to run down than men which scattered to their homes after each raid. Bige got back with the beer about then. Johnny told him that when I got out of jail, he was going to deportize me and we'd all go after them outlaws together. So Bige said, that was great and looked me over pretty sharp and we sat down and started playing poker. 
Long about supper time the jailer come in, looking tolerable seedy, and Johnny made him cook us some supper. Whilst we was eating, the jailer stuck his head into my cell and said, A gent is out there craving audience with Mr. Elkins. Tell him the prisoner's busy, says Johnny. A done so, says the jailer, and he says if you don't let him in pretty darn quick, he's gonna bust in and cut your throat. That must be old Abe Braxton, says Johnny. Better let him in. Breck, says he, I looks to you to protect me if the old cuss gets mean. So old Abed come waltzing into the jail with fire in his eye and corn liquor on his breath. At the sight of me, he let out a squall which was painful to hear. A hell of a help you be, you big lummox, he hollered. I sends for you to help me bust up a gang of rustlers and sheep herders, and the first thing you does is to get in jail. "'Tweren't my fault,' I says. "'Them sheep-herders started picking on me.' "'Well,' he snarls, "'wa'n't you drill Bissett Center when you was at it?' "'I come up here to shoot rustlers, not sheep-herders,' I said. "'What's the difference?' he snarled. "'Them sheep-men has probably got as much right to the range as you cowmen,' I says. "'See such outrageous blasphemy says he shocked you've bungled things so far but they's one good thing bissett had to hire back his derned hunky herders at double wages he don't no more mind spendin money than he does spillin his own blood that cussed tightwad well what's your fine ain't no fine i says Johnny wants me to stay in jail a while. At this, old Abed convulsively went for his gun, and Johnny got behind me and hollered, Don't you dare shoot a ossifer of the law. It's a spite trick, gibbered old Abed. He's been mad at me ever since I fired him off of my payroll. After I kicked him off of my ranch, he run for sheriff. And the night of the election, everybody was so drunk they voted for him by mistake, or for a joke, or something. And since he's been in office, he's been letting the sheepmen steal me right out of house and home. That's a lie, says Johnny heatedly. I give you as much protection as anybody else, you old buzzard. I just ain't been able to run any of them critters down, that's all. But you wait. Bige is on their trail, and we'll have em behind the bars before the snow falls. Before the snow falls in Guatemala, maybe, snorted old Abed. All right, blast you. I'm going, but I'll have Breckenridge out of here if I have to burn the cussed jail. A Raxton never forgets. So he stalked out sulphurously, only turning back to snort, Sheriff, bah, seven murders in the county unsolved since you come into office. You'll let them sheepmen murder us all in our beds. We ain't had a hanging since you was elected. After he left, Johnny brooded a while and finally says, 
The old Lobo's right about them murders, only he neglected to mention that four of them was sheepmen. I know it's cattlemen and sheepmen killin' each other, each side accusin' the other of rustlin' stock, but I can't prove nothin'. A hangin' would set me solid with the voters. Here he eyed me hungrily and ventured, If somebody just up and confessed to some of them murders, You needn't look at me like that, I said. I never killed nobody in Montana. Well, he argued, nobody could prove you never done em, and after you was hanged. Listen, here you, I says with some passion, I'm willing to help a friend get elected all I can, but they's a limit. Oh, well, all right, he sighed. I didn't much figure you'd be willing anyway. Folks is so darn selfish these days. All they thinks about is their selves. But listen here. If I was to bust up a lynching mob, it'd be nigh as good a boost for my campaign as a legal hanging. I'll tell you what. Tonight I'll have some of my friends put on masks and come take you out and pretend like they was going to hang you. Then when they got the rope around your neck, I'll run out and shoot in the air and they'll run off and I'll get credit for upholding law and order. Folks always disapproves of mobs unless they happens to be in em. So I said, all right. He urged me to be careful and not hurt none of em, because they was all his friends and would be mine. I asked him would they bust the door down, and he said there weren't no use in damaging the property like that. They could hold up the jailer and take the key off of him. So he went off to fix things, and after a while, Bige Gantry left and said he was on the trace of a clue to them cattle rustlers, and the jailer started drinking hair tonic mixed with tequila, and in about an hour he was stiffer than a wet lariat. Well, I laid down on the floor on a blanket to sleep without taking my boots off, and about midnight a gang of men with masks come and they didn't have to hold up the jailer cause he was out cold. So they taken the key off him and all the loose change and plugged the backer out of his pockets too and opened the door. And I asked, Are you the gents which is going to hang me? And they says, We be. So I got up and asked them if they had any liquor. And one of them give me a good snort out of his hip flask. And I said, All right. Let's get it over with so I can go back to sleep. He was the only one which done any talking, and the rest didn't say a word. I figured they was bashful. He said, Let's tie your hands behind you so's to make it look real. And I said, All right. They tied me with some rawhide thongs, which I reckon would have held the average man all right. So I went outside with them, and there was an oak tree right close to the jail, nice and bushes. I figured Johnny was hiding over behind them bushes. They had a barrel for me to stand on, and I got onto it. They throwed a rope over a big limb and put the noose around my neck, and the feller says, Any last words? Oh, hell, I says, this is plumb silly. Ain't it about time for Johnny at this moment? They kicked the barrel out from under me.
Well, I was kind of surprised, but I tensed my neck muscles and waited for Johnny to rush out and rescue me. But he didn't come, and the noose began to pinch the back of my neck. So I got disgusted and says, Hey, let me down. Then one of them which hadn't spoke up before says, By golly, I never heard a man talk after he'd been strung up before. I recognized that voice. It was Jack Campbell, Bissett's foreman. Well, I have got a quick mind in spite of what my cousin Bearfield Buckner says, so I knowed right off something was fishy about this business. So I snapped the thongs on my wrists and wrenched up and caught hold of the rope I was hung with by both hands and broke it. Them scoundrels was so surprised they didn't think to shoot at me till the rope was already broke, and then the bullets all went over me as I fell. When they started shooting, I knowed they meant me no good, and acted accordin'. I dropped right in the midst of em, and brung three to the ground with me, and during the few seconds to taken me to choke and batter em unconscious, the others was scared to fire for fear o' hitting their friends. We was so tangled up. So they clustered round me and started beating me over the head with their gun butts, and I riz up like a bar amongst a pack of hounds and grabbed four more of em and hugged em till their ribs cracked. Their masks come off during the process, revealing the faces of Bissett's friends. I'd saw em in the hotel. Somebody prodded me in the hind leg with a buoy at that moment, which infuriated me, so I throwed them four amongst the crowd and hit out right and left, knocking over a man or so at each lick, until I seen a wagon spoke on the ground and stooped over to pick it up. When I'd done that, somebody throwed a coat over my head and blinded me, and six or seven men then jumped onto my back. About this time I stumbled over some feller which had been knocked down and fell on my belly, and they all started jumping up and down on me enthusiastically. I wretched around and grabbed one and dragged him around to where I could reach his left ear with my teeth. I would have taken it clean off at the first snap, only I had to bite through the coat which was over my head. But as it was I'd done a good job, judging from his awful shrieks. He put forth a supreme effort and tore away, taking the coat with him, and I shaken off the others and riz up in spite of their puny efforts with the wagon spoke in my hand. A wagon spoke is a good comfort and implement to have in a melee, and very demoralizing to the enemy. This and busted all to pieces about the fourth or fifth lick, but that was enough. Them which was able to run had all took to their heels, leaving the battlefield strewed with moaning and cussing figures. Their remarks was shocking to hear, but I give em no heed. I headed for the sheriff's office, mad clean through. It was a few hundred yards east of the jail, and just as I rounded the jailhouse, I run smack into a dim figure which comes sneaking through the brush, making a curious clanking noise. It hit me with what appeared to be an iron bar, so I went to the ground with it and choked it and beat its head again the ground 
till the moon come out from behind a cloud and revealed the bewhiskered features of old Abednego Raxton. What the hell? I demanded of the universe at large. Is everybody in Montana crazy? What are you doing trying to murder me in my sleep? I weren't, you jack-eared lunkhead, snarled he when he could talk. Then what'd you hit me with that there pinch bar for, I demanded. I didn't know it was you, says he, getting up and dusting his breeches. I thought it was a grizzly bar when you riz up out of the dark. Did you bust out? Nah, I never, I said. I told you I was staying in jail to do Johnny a favor. And you know what that old son of Belial done? He framed it up with Bissett's friends to get me hung. Come on, I'm going over and interview the dern skunk right now. So we went over to Johnny's office, and the door was unlocked and a candle burning, but he weren't in sight. They was a small iron safe there, which I figured he had my guns locked up in, so I got a rock and busted it open, and sure enough, there my shooting irons was. They was also a gallon of corn liquor there, and me and Abed was discussing whether or not we had the moral right to drink it when I heard somebody remark in a muffled voice, woof, woof, woof. So we looked around and I seen a pair of spurs sticking out from under a camp cot over in the corner. I grabbed hold of the boots they was on and pulled them out, and a human figure come with them. It was Johnny. He was tied hand and foot and gagged, and he had a lump onto his head the size of a turkey egg. I pulled off the gag, and the first thing he says was, If you sons of perdition drinks my private liquor, I'll have your heart's blood. You better do some explaining, I says, resentfully. What you mean sickin' Bissett's friends onto me? I never done such, says he heatedly. Right after I left the jail, I come to the office here and was just fixin' to get hold of my friends to frame the fake necktie party when somebody come in at the door and hit me over the head. I thought it was Baj comin' in and didn't look round, then whoever it was clouded me. I'd just a while ago come to myself, and I was tied up like you see. If he's tellin' the truth, says old Abed, which he seems to be, much as I hates to admit it. It looks like some friend of Bissett's overheard you all talking about this thing, followed Johnny over and put him out of the way for the time being, then raised a mob of his own, knowing Breck wouldn't put up no resistance, thinking they was friends. I told you whose hat. We all drawed our irons, then put em up as Baj Gantry rushed in holding on to the side of his head, which was all bloody. i just had a brush with the outlaws, he hollered. I've been trailing them all night. They waylaid me while ago three miles out of town. They nearly shot my ear off. But if I didn't wing one of them, I'm a Dutchman. Round up a posse, howled Johnny, grabbing a Winchester and cartridge belt. Take us back to where you had the scrape, Baj. Wait a minute, I said, grabbing Baj. 
Let me see that ear. I jerked his hand away, disregarding the spur he stuck into my leg, and bellered, Shot hell! That ear was chawed, and I'm the man which done it. You was one of them illegitimates that tried to hang me. He then whipped out his gun, but I knocked it out of his hand and hit him on the jaw and knocked him through the door. I then followed him outside and taken away the buoy he drawed as he rose groggily and throwed him back into the office. And then I went in and I throwed him out again, then went out and throwed him back in again. How long is this going on? he asked. Probably all night, I assured him. The way I feel right now, I can keep heaving you in and out of this office from now till noon tomorrow. Hold up, gurgled he. I'm a hard nut, but I know when I'm licked. I confess, I done it. Done what? I demanded. I hit Johnny on the head and tied him up, he howled, grabbing wildly for the door jam as he went past it. I rigged the lynching party. I'm in with the rustlers. Set him down, hollered Abed, grabbing hold of my shirt. Quick, Johnny, help me hold Breckenridge before he kills a valorable witness. But I shaken him off impatiently and sought Gantry onto his feet. He couldn't stand, so I held him up by the collar, and he gasped, I lied about trading shots with the outlaws. I've been fooling Johnny all along. Them rustlers ain't no Wyoming gang. They all live around here. Ted Bissett is the head chief of them. Ted Bissett, eh? Whooped Abed, doing a war dance and kicking my shins in his glee. See there, you big lummox. What'd I tell you? What you think now after showing so darn much affection for them cussed sheepmen? Just shooting Bissett in the arm like he was your brother or something. Swander you didn't invite him out to dinner. You ain't got the... Ah, shut up, I said fretfully. Go on, Gantry. He ain't a legitimate sheepman, says he. That's just a blind, him running sheep. Ain't no real sheepmen mixed up with him. His gang is just the scrapings of the country, and they hide out on his ranch when things get hot. Other times they scatters and goes home. They're the ones which has been killing honest sheepmen and cattlemen trying to set the different factions agin each other so as to make stealing easier. The hunkies ain't in on the deal. He just brung em out to herd his sheep because his own men wouldn't do it, and he was afeard if he hired local sheep herders they'd catch on to him. Naturally, we wanted you out of the way when we knowed you'd come up here to run down the rustlers, so tonight I seen my chance when Johnny started talking about staging that fake hanging. I followed Johnny and tapped him on the head and tied him up, and went and told Bissett about the business, and we got the boys together, and you know the rest. It was a peach of a frame-up, and it would have worked, too, if we'd been dealing with a human being. Lock me up. All I want right now is a good, quiet penitentiary, where I'll be safe. Well, I said to Johnny after he'd locked Gantry up. All you got to do is ride over to Bissett's ranch and arrest him. He's laid up with his arm and most of his men is crippled. You'll find a number of them over by the jail. This ought to elect you. Well, it will, says he, doing a war dance in his glee. I'm as good as elected right now. And I'll tell you, Breck, tain't the job alone I'm thinking about. I'd have lost my gal if I'd lost the race. But she's promised to marry me if I catch them rustlers and got re-elected. 
and she won't go back on her word, neither. Yeah, I says with idle interest, thinking of my own true love. What's her name? Margaret Brewster, says he. What? I yelled in a voice which knocked old Abed over on his back like he'd been hit by a cyclone. Them which accuses me of violent and unusual conduct don't consider how my emotions was stirred up by the knowledge that I had went through all them humiliating experiences just to help a rival take my gal away from me. Throwing Johnny through the office window and kicking the walls out of the building was just a mild expression of the way I felt about the whole dern affair. And instead of feeling resentful, he ought to have been thankful. I was able to restrain my natural feelings as well as I had done. End of the Conquering Hero of the Humboldts